Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Outcomes Rocket listeners, welcome back once again to the Outcomes Rocket, where we chat with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders. I invite you to go to outcomesrocket.health to check out our podcast, leave us a rating and review, and let us know what you think about today's guest. His name is Sandro Galea. He's Dean Sandro Galea. He's a physician, epidemiologist, and public dean of health at the Boston University School of Public Health. He is uh, very well known for many of his research papers. He's got over 700 papers out there, all focused on population health. His work spans the majority of what we're talking about here on, on every podcast. And so it's really exciting to have him carve out some time for us and chat. We had uh, Will Wright, who uh, is with the Economic Development Partnership of Alabama, who recommended this book to me. And I was just floored by it, loved it. It's called Healthier, 50 Thoughts on, on the Foundations of Population Health. And this is one that I recommend to all of the listeners, if you have not read it yet, it's an amazing way, if you're a busy person, to get your dose of population health and understand it further. Each thought is between two and five pages, and so there's no need to feel guilty about diving into the content. And so there's my little pitch for his book, which I love and I recommend completely. But what I want to do is open up the microphone to Dean Galea and welcome him to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you for having me on. It is a pleasure. And so you've had a, a really extensive road that have, has brought you to where you're at today, Sandro. What would you say was the spark that got you interested in health? I grew up in a small um, Mediterranean island of Malta. That's where I, I grew up. That's where I did. Then I left as a, to go to university. And um, I was always interested in health. And um, as an immigrant, when you're interested in health, the only thing that you know you can do is be a doctor. So yes. all throughout all throughout my um, my early childhood and adolescence, I knew I was going to be a doctor because I knew I was interested in health. So I immigrated to Canada, went to medical school in Canada, and I did residency, and I became a doctor. The doc became a doctor, became an acute care doctor at emergency medicine and primary care, and I practiced in some remote rural places. And then I um, did some stints working globally, and some of those stints involved working in places like Papua New Guinea and working in places like the Philippines. And I also in particular worked in Somalia. And I spent um, a year on and off working with uh, Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Sans Frontier. Very cool. And um, I was the only doctor in around uh, in a region of about 350,000 people, a region called Puntland. And um, while I was there, I was doing medicine, acute care medicine every day. And people would be coming in, they would be injured, I would do my best to fix them. In many respects, I was doing the epitome of medicine. I was what doing what I was trying to do, helping people get better. Yes. And I remember, I remember having this feeling that once I left, nothing was going to change, that I was doing some good. I hoped I was doing some good. I hoped I was helping people. But once I left, nothing was going to change because maybe there would be another doctor from Doctors Without Borders, maybe not. But essentially nothing fundamentally was changing that was causing people to get sick. And I was thinking, there must be a better way. Now, the truth is, I did not know a better way. I was trained at the University of Toronto Medical School, which is fairly classic medical training. I was trained to be a good doctor and to make people with, who are sick, make them healthy again. But I had no understanding of, no training in, no perspective on how to 
keep people healthy to begin with. And I thought there must be a way of doing this. So I went back to school. I, um, I was a full-fledged physician working and I decided to go back to school and I went back and did a master's in public health and eventually did a PhD on the doctorate. And um, then my rest of my career has really been in population health. And it's been in trying to understand how it is that we can create a healthier world. That's been my journey. That's a beautiful journey. So you, you went from the front lines, this passion for health, frontline physician, explored third world country medicine, and just found this gravitational pull toward how can we make the foundations of health better? And, and so here you are today, uh, Dean Galea, just as a thought leader in population health, what would you say a hot topic that should be on every medical leader's agenda today? I think everybody who is in medicine and health today should be asking themselves the question, how can we make sure that everybody dies healthy? Now, what do I mean by that? Let's, let's assume for a second that we have- <laughs> uh, That's a unique perspective. Everybody dies healthy. Okay. Everybody dies healthy. We All want right. to make sure that uh, you and I saw live as long as we can, as healthy as we can, and then one day pass on. So that perspective is a very different perspective hmm. than a perspective that says what we're trying to do is catch people once they have disease and restore them to health and prolong disease in a way that it actually moves to health. What we want to do is to create right. the healthiest possible world. Now, when you say that to yourself, you start thinking about health differently because all totally. of a you realize that the locus of health is not me. It's not you. The locus of health is the world around us. You realize that if we want to keep everyone as healthy as possible for as long as possible, we need to create a world that generates health. And what does the world look like? Then it asks the question, what does that world look like? What are the politics that we need to put in place to generate health? What is the environment that we need to put in place to generate health? What are the people relationships we need to generate to put in place to generate health? What is the compassion we need to make sure that we generate health? And all of a sudden, the locus shifts away from the individual to the world around us. I actually think that's the hardest question that we face right now in health. And I would argue that's the most important question. And unfortunately, it's also the question that we pay least attention to. Yeah, it's a, a very insightful um, message that you shared there, Sandro. And as I think about that, you know, it definitely does create a, a shift in the way that, that I think about healthcare to die healthy. And why do you think we have this challenge of not focusing on, on what you just mentioned? I think there is an American script about how we think of health. And if I may, I think it extends to the language wow. you, you have used because you mm -hmm. have consistently used the word healthcare. Yes. You said at the beginning, the podcast is about healthcare. And right now in your question to me, you used the word healthcare. And I'm sure you didn't even think about it. Yeah. And that is because we are so used to thinking about healthcare as interchangeable with health. The two are very different concepts. Healthcare is about what you and I both need once we're sick, right? And, yes. and we, we want to have great healthcare. Let, let, let's be clear about it. When we're sick, and we'll all be sick at some point in our lives, we want good healthcare. We want good medicine to restore us to health. So in no way am I saying that's not important. I don't want it to be misunderstood. I think medicine and curative care is very important. However, the narrative is so dominated by medicine and curative care that the word healthcare slips in without even noticing. So we need to change the script and we need to start talking about health. I would argue that your podcast is about health. You're actually ultimately interested in generating health. And healthcare is but one approach to that. But if you are interested in generating health, you need to think about 
place and nature. You need to think about knowledge that we need to generate health. You need to have the humility to recognize that there are a lot of things we don't know about how to generate health. We need to help people structure their choices uh, better. We need to make sure that we have the freedom to live in a healthy way. We need to make sure that there is a fair and just environment that can promote health. And we need to ultimately think about the values that promote health as a public good. That is what we need to think about when we think about health. Yeah, that's super interesting, uh, Dean Galea. And so health versus healthcare. And for the listeners that thinking through these profound thoughts that Dean Galea is sharing, what is it that we can do whether you're an industry executive or, or you're a provider, to think about this in a bigger way. Health is different than healthcare. And what can you do to start providing the resources, the thoughtfulness, the care, the compassion to help people live healthier lives? A big problem that I see, Dingalea, is just the way that the health system incentives are positioned. They're positioned to, to drive that curative care that, that you mentioned rather than the preventative care. What are your thoughts on, on shifts there that need to happen? I think that's an excellent question. Let me, let me answer it first by example. Favorite examples is what some hospitals have done to reduce their costs, but also the burden of acute asthma attacks seen in emergency departments. So some hospitals around the country have had the forward-looking vision to say, we're getting these acute asthma attacks. They happen with vulnerable populations, particularly when the weather is such, for example, when it's very hot and stifling in urban areas. And they said, we're never going to change this. It's costing us a lot of money unless we go out into the community, into people's homes, and, for example, provide them with air conditioners. Now, I think you would agree, and most listeners would agree, that air conditioners, providing air conditioners, is not really healthcare. Right. What it is, is it's structuring the environment so that people do not get acute asthma attacks to begin with. And that, this has been published, has been shown to reduce costs for hospitals as well as keeping people healthy. So I do not think that the incentives need to be as misaligned as we think they are. Now, having said that, there is a real challenge with the incentives. I mean, there is a real challenge that many healthcare systems continue to be incentivized on a sick person basis. They're incentivized to restore people to health rather than to keep people healthy. And that will need to change over time. But we are seeing movements towards that over time. Global payment models are ultimately movements in that direction. ACOs are movement in, movements in this direction. They remain small efforts in the big scheme of things, but at core, I cannot help but feel that the appeal of this perspective is such that eventually it has to prevail. Yes. And it's fascinating, this idea of an air conditioner and you pay, you know, whatever, $400 for an air conditioner and you can avoid a patient from really having those attacks and even the costs on the system. So the broadening of what can be paid for with Medicare, Medicaid dollars is definitely a question that should be addressed over in, uh, in, in Washington. It uh, certainly should be. And uh, this is a complicated question. There's no question. In large part, it's complicated because we, have, we already have a system. We have a system. It's set up. There are incentives. There's momentum. There are ways in which we do things. And anytime you start thinking about shifting systems, it involves a lot of people. It involves a lot of particular interests. But th this is why I come to the notion that we need a change in the script. We need a change in language, a change in conversation around health. And there is... At core, one of the things that has animated me for the past several years is a fundamental mismatch in this country. And the mismatch is as follows. We spend more on health. And I'm pausing when I say the word health, because as I'm going to get to, it's not really health, but we spend more on health than any other country in the world. 
all your listeners know this, about the third more effect, like not just a little bit more, a lot more. But we also have worse health indicators than other high-income countries. Now, I'm not comparing us to low-income countries, not a fair comparison, right. but to our peer countries, we have worse health indicators. So there is this mismatch that we spend more and get less. And arguably, we would not accept that mismatch in any other sector. And in fact, there's no other sector you can think of that has the same example. So the question is, why is that? Like, What's going on? Why are we spending so much and getting so little? Is there something naturally wrong with Americans? No, there isn't. The answer is very simple. The answer is that we spend on curative care. We spend on curative care and we do not spend on the sectors that ultimately we need to invest in to keep people healthy, as well as spending on curative care to restore us to health when we get sick. So we have this enormous mismatch. How do you fix the mismatch? Well, you make sure you generate the science to support this, and you make sure that you communicate, you communicate, you communicate, so that we can change the language and focus the language on health. Absolutely. And one of the things that's a theme here that you've mentioned, Sandra, is this thought of changing the script. It's something that that I think about in my day-to-day as an individual, just gonna, what's the script? What's my story? How is that affecting what I'm doing with my family, with my work? But there's also a thing that you do really well and that I captured from from reading your book is just this this amazing ability to, to capture society sort of as a body in itself and society, American society also has a script and changing that script is the opportunity for anybody in in public health as well as at a hospital. What would you say is the way that we can do that? How do we change the script? I think there are different ways we can change the script. And the two ways that come to my mind is, number one is by telling stories that illustrate why we need a new script. And number two is by producing the right evidence. So let me start with the story. Let me tell a story if you don't mind. Yes, please. We like stories. Okay, good. So... (laughs) The story is of a, is of a blues man, a um, blind Willie Johnson. Blind Willie Johnson is a blues man. You can, you can find his work out there. And um, blind Willie Johnson's latest claim to fame was that uh, one of his songs was included in the golden disc that was sent off into space on one of the um, uh, spacecrafts that just went out. It's never going to come back in case aliens encounter us and they can hear us. <laughs> so that's blind Willie Johnson. Now... <laughs> Lionville Johnson was born at the turn of the 20th century in Texas. The story is that he was blinded by having lie thrown in his face when he was three in a domestic violence incident. So he grew up blind and poor in Texas. He learned how to play. He made a living busking. Not a very good living, but made a living. He got married. He was living in a fairly ramshackle house, which burned down. Him and his wife had no money, so they kept living in the burnt-out shell of his house. In his early 40s, Blindley Johnson got malaria. His wife took him to hospital, and the story is that he was turned away from hospital. Now, it's unclear whether he was turned away because he was poor, because he was black, because he was blind, and then he died. Now, suppose for a second that there was an effective pill that he could have taken for his malaria right away or a shot they could have taken that could have cured him. Everybody listening to this will realize that blind Willie Johnson was going to die sooner or later anyway. Something was going to get him. It wasn't just malaria that killed Blind Willie Johnson. It was malaria, but it was also poverty. It was domestic violence. It was racism. It was homelessness. All of those factors also killed Blind Willie Johnson. And when you tell that story, I think most rational people realize, oh, we should definitely do something about malaria, but we should also do something about domestic violence, about racism, about homelessness, about access to care. And that is what it means to create a healthier world. 
that you do not ignore the malaria. You don't ignore the malaria treatment, but you also realize that unless we can also deal with these accumulating risks, we are never going to create a truly healthy world. So you ask me, what can we do? So number one is I think we tell the stories of what it requires to create a healthy population. And the second thing I think is we need to focus our science on generating this evidence. We need to focus our science on showing the, that public transportation implemented on a large scale will end up saving lives and saving money. We need to generate more and more evidence that shows that the earned income tax credit will result in saving mothers' and children's lives. We need to create a data that shows that creating affordable housing can double people's uh, quality of life and assessments of their own um, health. These are all examples which I'm giving you on which there are data. There are many, many other aspects of creating a healthy world on which we do not have data. So telling the stories, creating the evidence, that's what I think we need to do. That's such a beautiful uh, response and, and I think a wonderful way of doing it. And so you're exposed to a lot of these things in your role with what you do, Dingalea. A lot of the people that are in the front line, like you were at one point, just don't get that exposure. What would you say the best way to hear these stories and to figure out what the possibilities are is? Because you're a wealth of knowledge. How do we connect what you do with the implementers in the front lines are doing? I think that's what you're doing, Saul. <laughs> that's why you have a podcast and I presume that's why you had me on. So my job is to tell the story and your job is to make sure that everyone listens to your podcast. Oh man, that's such a great call out. And this is exactly why we started Outcomes Rocket. And it's a really great idea. And I love what you've gone into here. And so the thought is maybe we create some sort of forum where people can go and, and hear stories of what it is that actually works and changing the script. That's just something that really resonates with me, Sandro. And I'm gonna think about how we implement this even further to empower those in the front lines listening to this podcast to make decisions that are going to work best for the populations, but also them as people and individuals. I'm into help. You let me know how. Thank you so much. I, I'm going to take you up on it. <laughs> so, Sandro, can you give us a, an example of potentially a population health effort that has gone awry and what was learned from it? Because a lot of the listeners are working hard and they're working a lot of hours to dive deeper and provide solutions in population health. Can you give an example of, of a mistake that you've seen and what they could uh, learn from it so they don't repeat it? Yeah, I can give a big picture and I'll, I'll hone in. I think in the big picture, there are many efforts at uh, population health improvement that fail. And, and, and the ones that fail, in my estimation, looking at the data, are typically efforts that aim to tell people how to behave better. The data are clear, telling people how to behave better. Thou shalt not eat high-fat foods. Thou shalt not smoke. Thou shalt not drink. <laughs> they just do not work. They, in fact, they might work for a short while, and then they stop working. So population health efforts that, that are what I would call exhortative, exhortative telling people, finger-wagging. Yes. That is not the right way to improve population health. If we would like people to have healthier behaviors, we need to change the structures around them. I'll give you an example of that. The best example of that is the incredible success story of the reduction in death from car accidents. In the past 100 years, people die per vehicle mile driven 220 times less than they did 100 years ago. That is an amazing success story. It's amazing. Now, I ask you this question. Are people today better drivers than they were 100 years ago? The data pretty clear. You know, I live in Boston. I can tell you that they're not. <laughs> um, 
that's uh, funny. And uh, you know, I include myself in that probably. But we have had enormous success. How do we have success? We had success because we created airbags and seat belts and shatterproof glass and um, ways for people to pull over and make sure that people don't drink and drive through through legislation. That's how we changed it. So public health efforts. That imagine if a hundred years ago someone said, "Look, we have a problem with car accidents." What we need to do is we need to do a full-out effort, spend 100 years just teaching people to drive better. Who would not have nudged our car fatality? Maybe nudged them a little bit, but nowhere near the 225-fold reduction that we have now. So number one, I think public population health efforts fail if they simply try to target individual behavior because we humans, we, you and me, well, I shouldn't speak for you, I'll speak for myself. We're imperfect. We do bad things to ourselves. Yes. And it's a matter of changing the world around us so that our choices can be healthy choices. So that's number one. The second, I think, mistake that can draw population health efforts is something that's a little bit more subtle, but I think equally important, which is we can aim to improve the health of whole populations. And in so doing, we create health gaps within populations. So let me give you a concrete example. Supposing you are responsible for the health of a particular population. Supposing you say, well, one of the things I want to do is I want to increase the rate of colonoscopy. People over 50 probably should get regular colonoscopies, reduce the incidence of uh, colorectal cancer. So you say the colonoscopy rate in this community is 60%. I want to take it up to 80%. How do you take it up to 80%? Well, the easiest way to do that is I'm going to go to everybody who is rich and well-housed in this community and take up their colonoscopy rate to 100%. By doing that, my average is going to go up to 80 But of course, you ignore everybody else and everybody else's colonoscopy rate drops to 50%. So you've succeeded in improving the average, but you've now widened the gap. And I think that is a real challenge that population health efforts face And I think there's no easy solution for that. I think there's a tension between equity and efficiency, which is achieving overall outcomes. It's ultimately a utilitarian question about which of these do you most prefer. And I don't think there's a right answer. I think it's a a value question. I think it's a complex question. But I think it's something that anybody interested in population health needs to have in her mind. Because we need to make sure that we balance the health of the many with the health of the few. And that is intrinsic. That is intrinsic to the imperatives we have to create healthy populations and not to make populations more inequitable. Yeah, these are some great lessons. And, and listeners, take these thoughts into consideration as you, as you look to implement population health programs where you're at. And if you're a company looking to somehow partner with the providers to do this, just keep these thoughts in mind. Some really great points of wisdom there. And I've taken a lot of notes here. I know that you have too, but don't worry if you haven't, if you're driving or you're working out, you could dive into outcomesrocket.health slash Sandro. That's outcomesrocket.health slash Sandro. And you'll be able to get the details here of what we've been talking about. So Dean Galea, this has been really, really interesting. Part of what we do in in the podcast here as we're getting close to the end is we build a syllabus on what it takes to be successful in medicine today. It's the 101 or the ABCs of Sandro Galea in this case. So I've got four questions for you. They're going to be lightning round style, and then we'll finish with a book that you recommend to the listeners. You ready? I'm ready. Awesome. What's the best way to improve health outcomes? Investing in all the structures around us that create a healthy world. What is the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? The biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid is to think that I, by myself, can make myself healthy. The biggest mistake we can make is by thinking, as long as I have enough money to go to the best possible doctor, I'm going to be healthy because that is when all of a sudden you realize by not investing in health systems in West Africa, all of a sudden one can die of Ebola in Texas the next day. So the mistake is to think it's all about me 
And the right answer is to realize that our health collectively, whether we like it or not, is interlinked and we have no choice but to invest in creating in looking at health as a public good. That's the mistake. Love that. And listeners, if you want to dive a little bit deeper into this thought, I'll put a link here to Dean Galea's talk on TEDMED. He really dives deep into this thought of me versus we and, and the impacts of, of that in healthcare. So go to the show notes and, and you'll be able to find that. How do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? I think organizations stay relevant by um, following the Gretzky maxim. You don't go where the puck is, you go where the puck is going to be. Of course, it's tricky to know where the puck is going to be, but um, in the context of health, there is little question in my mind that the puck is going to be in a place of keeping people healthy and for as long as possible. And organizations that, healthcare organizations, that continue to focus strictly on restoring people to health are on the losing side of history. Love it. What is one area of focus that should drive everything else in your organization? I think humanity has created organizations as a way of generating human capital. I think organizations are um, all about the people inside them. And uh, at the end of the day, organizations are only as strong as the people who make up that organization. So the area of focus ultimately needs to be on developing people in the organization, nurturing those people so that those people can do the best job they possibly can and helping the organization achieve its mission. And finally, uh, Dean Galea, what book would you recommend to the listeners on this syllabus? I would recommend the recently released book by um, Walt Whitman, which was uh, called uh, Manly Health and Training to Teach the Science of Sound and Beautiful Body, which, Walt, which was culled from writings of Walt Whitman more than 100 wow. years ago, where he talked about many of the things that you and I are talking about right now. That's amazing. Okay, that's a really great recommendation. And listeners, take that one down. But also in that list, Dr. Galea, he's a very humble man, but I also want to recommend his book, which was very inspiring. And I know that you'll find inspiring, especially if you're a busy person trying to learn about population health. It's called Healthier, 50 Thoughts on the Foundations of Population Health. Pick that one up. And then also the Walt Whitman on healthcare. What was the name of that one again? The quaint name, it's called Manly Health and Training. Manly Health and Training. And this is the timeless principles of what works, right? That's correct. Love it. So you'll find links to this, listeners, in it. Just go to the show notes at outcomesrocket.health slash Sandro. And so we're here to the end, Dean Galea. This has been so much fun. I'd love if you could just share a closing thought with the listeners and the best place that they could follow you or get a hold of you. Let me close with uh, one more story. This is for... Um you know, as a dean of a school of public health, I don't have much time for pets, but I have pet goldfish. Okay. And I love my pet goldfish. I know you're wondering where this is going. I'm going to get <laughs> uh, So I tell my pet goldfish, I want you to be healthy. So every day I want you to swim around your bowl 10 times clockwise, 10 times counterclockwise, so you stay fit. And when I feed you the little flaky stuff on top, don't eat too much so you don't get fat. And when you get sick goldfish, I'm going to get you the best goldfish doctor. And then one day... I walk into my living room and my goldfish are all dead. Oh. How else could this be? They exercise, they didn't eat too much, and they had the best doctor. And then I realized, ah, I forgot to change their water. And if you don't change the goldfish's water, it doesn't matter what else you do, the goldfish will not live. And we are the goldfish. And when we focus only on medicine, the same thing happens to us. So we ultimately need to create our health by thinking about our water. And our water is where we live, the cities around us, the rural environments around us, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, the politics and policies that shape those conditions. That's ultimately what creates health. 
that's my last thought. Now, there's how to follow me. I, uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Sandro Galea, one word. And uh, I, um, tend to, I publish on various different places, but I always push things out on Twitter. It's probably the easiest way of following me. Wonderful. A powerful way to end this, this interview, Dean Galea. This has been amazing. I really appreciate you carving out the time for us and uh, looking forward to keeping up with your work. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Saul. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more.